a collection of everything so big it can never be catalogued or appraised. The loot of the world. You got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Where's the loot? I don't, I don't know who's got the loot. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. Hello looters, welcome to episode 52 of The Movie Loot, the podcast where I talk about the best loot of films I watch every month. My name is Carlo and that's what I'm here to do. But before we get into today's loot, let's give some promos to our previous episodes. December was a busy month for the loot. Earlier in the month we released our first bonus episode, which we dedicated to Rita Moreno, talk about her life and career in the wake of her 90th birthday, and the release of the West Side Story remake where she acts and also serves as executive producer. About a week ago, we released episode 51, The Final Loot, where me and my guest Phil Sagan talked about final films. We had a great conversation about what drives directors in the late stages of their career and shared our top five final films from directors that passed away. And finally, earlier this week, we released special episode 9, where I analyzed the prologue of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, as the film turns 20 years old. I had a lot of fun talking about that. All of those episodes and every single episode in our catalog is available for you to listen, so check them all out. I also want to thank Byrne for inviting me to his podcast, Cinema Recall, to talk about one of my favorite recent films, Paul Thomas Anderson, Phantom Threat. That will be coming out soon, so follow Byrne at cinema underscore recall to keep an eye on it. I also want to thank my friend Ian from the Best Film Ever podcast for inviting me to join the Cinematic Council of Podcasts. Along with Ed from the Film Effect Podcast, Agent Scott from Spy Hearts, Danny from It's a Musical Podcast, and Kevin from the podcast That Wouldn't Die. We had a great time chatting about what to expect from films in this new year 2022. You can look for that on Best Film Ever's timeline. As for today, I'll be sharing my thoughts on some of the films I saw last month, The December Loot. As you all know, I start every month with a set of random criteria to guide me on what to watch. This month, I ended up watching 10 films in total, so it's probably going to be a quick one. So let's begin with my loot of films for December. A film from Rita Moreno. You like that? Yeah. I give her to you. What's wrong? I'm a generous guy. Yeah, I'm grateful. How do I break the news to her? You go over there. Yeah. There's a way to talk to girls, you know. Tell her a joke. What joke? Tell her about your unhappy childhood. That's not bad. But don't make it like an act. No. Go ahead. Go ahead, schmuck. If you don't, I will. You. You can't stand up. I chose this category because Moreno's birthday was December 11, and I went with a film in which she only appears in the last five minutes, Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge from 1971. The film follows two best friends, Sandy and Jonathan, played by Art Garfunkel and Jack Nicholson, during three distinct stages of their life, college, several years after, and middle age. 
The focus of each act is how the two interact and engage with different women in their lives and with each other. And you can get a sneak peek of that in that clip I put. I give her to you. It's my turn. That's the kind of attitude and mindset you'll get from them. Even though Sandy is more sensitive and Jonathan is more egocentric, the two are stuck in a constant quest to prove themselves to each other while also performing a metaphorical dick measuring contest. Jules Pfeiffer's script and Nicole's direction perfectly captures that male chauvinistic perspective and how to them women are possessions, objects, and trophies to concede from one to the other. Garfunkel and Nicholson are perfect in their roles, and although the first act is fairly balanced between the two, the second act puts the spotlight more on Nicholson, and you all know he owns this sleazy character from start to finish, but not without subtly showing us where the cracks are in his persona. Having seen about four Nichols film in a relatively short period of time, I can say that he clearly has a talent for exposing the vulnerabilities of male-female interaction, and this film is no exception. If you're interested, Carnal Knowledge is available for rent on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, and more. A film from Kenya. For this category, I went with a film called Rafiki from 2018. This was recommended to me by my great friend Sylvie at Sly underscore Wit. And she said, Rafiki was one of my favorite discoveries of last year, not because it's particularly deep or perfectly executed, but rather because it was the right film at the right time. It's about a difficult secret romance, but it's filled with color and music, which I really needed last January. And that's right, the film follows Kena, played by Samantha Mugazia, a young woman that starts a relationship with Siki, played by Sheila Munjiva. The thing is that both their parents are political rivals, which causes all sorts of tension, not only because of their parents, but also because Kenya is a highly conservative country where homosexuality is considered unacceptable. So obviously the story is bittersweet, but beautifully carried by Mugazia and Munjiva. The actresses have great chemistry and their relationship feels honest and real. The film also does a good job of showing the struggles of the LGBTQ community in Kenya without losing the focus of this specific relationship, which is a representation of probably thousands of real relationships in that country, even if some people there don't want it to be. A Western film. Who's Captain Buffalo? Captain Buffalo is a... Well, he's the ideal soldier, you know. Giant size, kind of a Paul Bunyan. I guess they're laying it on a little thick now for Rutledge. Try to give him confidence and cheer him up. a wonderful way to do it. For this category, I went with John Ford's Sergeant Rutledge from 1960. This film was recommended to me by my good friend Tyler at A Film Addicted during episode 37 in which we talk about hidden gems and this is a bit of what he said. This was kind of like John Ford trying to deal with some of the myth-making he had done in making his westerns and him kind of recognizing maybe things weren't as hunky-dory between the americans as i've put it 
Having seen it myself, I have to wonder the same as Tyler. The film follows the titular man, played by Woody Strode, a black sergeant in a regiment of the US cavalry who is being court-martialed for the rape and murder of a white girl. He is represented by Lieutenant Tom Cantrell, played by Jeffrey Hunter, who also happens to be Rutledge's troop officer. This is a film that's not only extremely well made, but culturally significant by having Ford, a director that pretty much owned the Western genre in the beginning of the 20th century, with all of its prejudices, direct dishonest portrayal of racism and the struggles of black military men or black people in general in the US of the 19th century is something else. The film works through a series of flashbacks that shows us how the events that Rodledge is accused of unfold, but through all the accusations, Rodledge maintains his integrity and honor. Strode has a gallant and commanding presence that conveys just that, a man that never breaks, and when he does break, you can understand how hard it is for him. That said, the film is not without its flaws. The legal side was a bit overrocked as it seemed to go through a lot of hoops to make its point, but it also can't help but resort to the white savior trope and switch the focus to the blue-eyed, square-jawed Cantrell and a half-baked romantic subplot. But the film is still a powerful statement with some great scenes and performances. My friend Sylvie again said, I only discovered the underrated Sergeant Rodledge because it was expiring on Criterion. I ended up pleasantly surprised by it. So if you're interested, Sergeant Rodledge is currently available for rent on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, and other services. The last Best Picture winner I haven't seen. Where were you born? On a chicken farm outside of Lubbock. Beautiful southern home filled with every luxury and refinement. Were your parents now? Probably on the front porch in their rocking chairs. Parents dead. Family fortune swept away. You were educated at the Sacred Heart. <laughs> then you fell into a runaway marriage. Left you miserable, alone, unhappy. And of course, you got all swept up in the mad whirl of the city. Jazz, cabarets, liquor. You were drawn like a moth to the flame. Oh, no. Now the mad whirl has ceased. And you are a butterfly. Crushed! On the wheel. Do what she says. Is it the moth or the butterfly? You have sinned and you are sorry. God, that's beautiful. Cut out God. Stay where you're better acquainted. Okay. This is one of my favorite categories because it gives me the opportunity to catch up with some great films. What I do is that in January, I start going forward on the list of Best Picture winners and watch the first one I haven't seen. For example, this January, I saw Grand Hotel, which was the winner in 1932. Then in December, I do the same, but backwards. I start going back on the list of Best Picture winners and watch the first one I haven't seen. And this year, it was Chicago's Turn from 2002. This film follows Roxy Hart, played by Renee Selwiger, a housewife and aspiring entertainer that finds herself in jail for murder. While she's in there, she hires Billy Flynn, played by Richard Gere, a brilliant but self-absorbed and flashy attorney that also happens to be representing Roxy's idol, Velma Kelly, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. This puts both Roxy and Velma in a tug-of-war to hug the spotlight of their trials. The first thing I'll say is that the performances are pretty good, the role of Roxy fits Selweger perfectly, but I was more impressed by Zeta Jones and Jeer, both of which I found to be quite energetic and vibrant. I was very surprised by Jeer, who is usually a very subdued actor, or shall we say boring, but he was very very good in this. 
John C. Riley and Queen Latifah are also pretty good in the supporting cast. One thing that I had a slight issue with, and I might be in the minority, is that the film seems to work on two planes. First, the straightforward plot about Roxy's trial and her attempts to gain fame at all costs. And second, the musical numbers, which are usually shot on stage independently of the first plane, and then weaved into the film through editing. I found this a bit disappointing, at least in some of the sequences. Part of me wishes there would have been a better integration between what's actually happening in the film and the song and dance numbers, instead of having a separate performance. This is not all the time, there are some moments where I think it works, but for me, not always. Putting that aside, most of the songs are quite catchy and lively. I think Mr. Cellophane and We Both Reach for the Gun were the most memorable for me, in terms of music, performance, and what they mean regarding the story. My friend Caroline from Defining Disney said, Chicago! Easily one of our whole crew's all-time faves. Truly a triumph of the modern movie musical genre. So if you want to check out Chicago, it's currently streaming free on HBO Max and Stars, But it's also available for rent on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, and others. A film from the Criterion Collection whose number includes the number 12. I have friends. I don't want them, but I have them. Scanner friends? What do you mean by that? I'm one of you. You're one of me? Yes. You know what I think? I think you better tell me what you really want. the voices in my head they're driving me crazy how do you stop them your voices my heart my art keeps me sane This category I went with one I had been meaning to check for a long time, and it's David Cronenberg Scanners from 1981. The film follows these people, scanners, that have telepathic abilities when one of them, called Daryl Rebock, played by Michael Ironside, starts to wreak havoc. A security and weapons company puts its trust in Cameron Bale, played by Stephen Lack, another scanner that might have more issues of his own. Most of you will probably know Scanners for an iconic scene in which Revok uses his powers to blow up the head of a fellow Scanner. This occurs in the opening 15 minutes but has been mimified to death. <laughs> to death. Unfortunately, nothing in the rest of the film tops that scene in terms of special effects, gore, tension and just what the fuck is happening, but it's still a fun ride. The main issue with the film is Lack, who is lacking. Seriously, he is barely serviceable as the lead. His performance is not bad, but it's just too bland and dull. Ironside, on the other hand, is the opposite. His performance is energetic and in your face, and Ironside shoots it all up pretty well. My friend Tim Dougherty said, Although I appreciate Cronenberg's avant-garde style, I don't think telekinesis translates to film well. Stephen Lack's facial contortions were ridiculous. Michael Ironside's revoc should have been the focus of the story, far more interesting character. And my friend Loser said, I really need to rewatch Scanners. It's been a long time and Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors. So overall, Scanners never regains the shock and awe of its opening act, but it's still a solid and intriguing story that 
might be worth a watch or a rewatch, especially if you like body horror. Scanners is currently streaming free on HBO Max and the Criterion channel. So that was my December loot, or what I think were the best films I saw this month. Carnal Knowledge, Rafiki, Sergeant Rutledge, Chicago, and Scanners. But those were not the only ones I saw. As I was preparing for that bonus episode on Rita Moreno, I rewatched the original West Side Story and also watched the documentary Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It. You can check that bonus episode for my thoughts on Moreno in general. I also got into a nice discussion with Caroline from Defining Disney after I told her I wasn't a fan of the original West Side Story. I have serious issues not only with the representation and handling of Puerto Rican characters and actors, or lack of, but also with the fact that the two leads are just too boring and dull. Caroline said, I would imagine being from Puerto Rico, you have a very different perspective than we do. I haven't watched it as an adult, but I have a lot of nostalgia attached to the film and score after watching it so much when I was studying musical theater. I know now it definitely has its problems, though. But we both agree that Moreno is the scene stealer for sure. I also watched Mike Nichols' final film, Charlie Wilson's War, but you can hear me talk about it on episode 50, The Final Loot, with Phil Sagan, where I include it on my top 5 final films. Also, in preparation for that guest appearance on Cinema Recall with my friend Byrne, I rewatched Phantom Threat from Paul Thomas Anderson. As soon as that episode is out, I'll share it, but I'll say this, and I tweeted this yesterday, every time I talk or write about that film, Phantom Threat, I love it more and more. I always say that There Will Be Blood is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, but this one is really, really close and maybe even tight. It is that good. The last two films I saw were two short films. One is called One and One is Twelve from 2015, which is a pretty inept short film and not really worth a watch. And the last one was Mickey's Christmas Carol from 1983, which I saw on New Year's Eve with my two kids. They know the story pretty well, but they still like it a lot and it was a fun way to close the year. So those were my thoughts on the films I saw during the month of December. As we say goodbye to 2021, I also want to share some recaps, milestones, and thank yous of what I saw all year and of what has happened in the podcast during the year. I finished the year watching a total of 163 films. That is a bit less from the 201 films I saw in 2020, but I intentionally reduced my monthly goal, so it was expected. My least favorite first-time watches were... One on One is 12, which I just mentioned, which was a terrible short film. The Serbian Lawyer, which was a pretty bad documentary. Spiral from the Book of Saw. Winter of the Braves, which was a war film from Ukraine. And Butterfly Kisses, which was a found footage mockumentary. On the other hand, my favorite first time watches, not rewatches, would be Woman in the Dunes from 1964, Le Jeu Celeb from 1939. Ran from Akira Kurosawa, 1985, Ida from 2013, which I discussed in my previous episode, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966, also from Mike Nichols, who I talked about in this episode. Other favorites, Rififi, The Virgin Spring, Tokyo Story, Bicycle Thieves, The Passion of Joan of Arc, all of those were some great first-time watches I had this year. There were a lot of great things I watched. What I want to single out is The Whisperers from 1967, which has what I think or what I consider to be the best performance I saw this year from Edith Evans. That was a masterful performance. Other nice surprises that fell more in the weird mindfuck tier were Triangle, Under the Skin, 
A Boy and His Dog, Beyond the Black Rainbow, Brazil, Fantastic Planet, and Robert Altman's Images. If I were to single out the most infuriating and emotionally affecting scene, I guess I have to go with the scene of Bobby Seal in The Trial of the Chicago 7. That scene made me so angry. Not only what we see in the film, but reading afterwards and in real life, what happened was actually worse than what we saw on the film. It just pissed me off. And if I were to mention the most mind-blowing scene, I would probably have to go with the five-minute continuous shot from The Secret in Their Eyes, which is, again, mind-blowing. Now that 2021 is over and a new year has begun, a new challenge begins. I will share more about that in future episodes, so I invite you all to check out what we have in store. We already have a great guest lineup for our first 2022 episode, and we might be changing the format a bit for our regular episodes. Let's hope you all like it. But I also want to thank all the guests I had through the year. I thanked them many times before, but I want to do it again. When I started 2021, I set out to bring a diverse group of people to talk about films. And I can say I'm satisfied that I did just that. From great internet friends and fellow podcasters to film scholars and academics and even comedians, actors, musicians, and even an Emmy Award winner. My second guest, Steve Mason, is a stand-up comedian and a former writer for Ellen DeGeneres, for which he won an Emmy. He has a podcast, The Mason Movie Club, which was an inspiration to me when I was starting mine. And he was gracious enough to come on the show. We had a great time talking about comedy in general and his career. So imagine how amazing it is that in just my second episode with a guest, I was talking with the man that served as an inspiration for my podcast. That was great. But I also want to thank my friends, Leonard, Tyler, Keram and Phil, you're all great friends that I've known for years in the internet, and it was great to finally meet you and talk films with all of you. Hope we can sit together one day and have a cup of coffee. To Nicole and Caroline from Defining Disney, Ian from Best Film Ever, David Rosen from Piecing It Together, and Ed from the Film Effect Podcast. Not only are you great friends, but you're all examples to follow, be it for your organization and work ethic, your creativity, and the energy you put behind your podcast. I admire you all. Finally, to film awards expert Eric Anderson from Awards Watch, Kubrick scholar Nathan Abrams, and film noir expert Richard Edwards, it was an honor to have you on the show and count with your expertise. I want to thank you all for your time and the great conversations. If you look at my top 5 or top 10 episodes, you will see you're the reason the show has been doing so well. People don't want to listen to me. They want to listen to me talking to somebody else. On that note, I'm really happy and really proud of how well the show has done this year. When I started this, I said I wasn't doing it for the numbers, but because I wanted to engage with like-minded people. So if I talk about numbers now, it's because it is my belief that those downloads have translated into more engagement and more people with whom to talk about film. This year, we tripled the amount of downloads we had our first year, which is great. Not only that, but for the past year, almost every month has been better or almost better than the previous. So that means we're growing and we're reaching more people, which is the main goal I had for the podcast. Once again, thank you to each and every one of you. So that's it for our November loot and for 2021. But we're not going anywhere. So remember, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and most of the main podcast platforms so you can stay up to date with what we have in store for 2022. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at TFCDT and the podcast at TMML2021. Also, feel free to share the link for the podcast so more people can join us in the loot. Have a great day, a better year, and let's keep looting films together. Let me out! Let me out! I'll... Uh?
I'm back in my own room. It's Christmas morning. I haven't missed it. The spirits have given me another chance. Oh, I know just what I'll do. They'll be so surprised. Oh, what a wonderful day. <laughs> oh, there's so much to do. Oh, oh so much to do. <laughs> I can't go out like this.